Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, May 6th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi, everyone. I'm actually coming to you from our studio in downtown Washington for the first time since March of 2020. Uh, But we're not all ready to be in the same room yet. I hope it will be soon. But first, the news. Let's start with COVID this week, which is rapidly becoming a story of things getting better here in the U.S. and worse in other parts of the world. I want to start overseas because that's where the news is. After what was a reportedly spirited debate, the Biden administration has decided to support a temporary waiver of patent protections for the COVID vaccines. The exact details will be worked out by the World Trade Organizations. It feels like this is at once a very big deal in that the U.S. is bucking the desires of the very powerful and now very angry prescription drug industry, uh, whose statements on this action are pretty outspoken. And at the same time, it feels like a very small deal in that it's a very long way from giving other countries the ability to manufacture vaccines themselves and getting vaccines into people's arms. So is this a big deal or not so much? Right. So you're hearing sort of some of the same arguments that come up like on Capitol Hill whenever they're debating anything related to, um, you know, going after the drug industry, regulating them more, uh, having more government involvement, which is you have people arguing that this will disincentivize innovation and investments in the future. Um, But at the same time, you have people arguing that the status quo is unsustainable and that we need to really put people's lives over the profit of the industry. And so you're hearing some of these same arguments. And so you're right that um, this won't change things immediately. And it would actually be much faster for the United States, which is already producing more vaccines than we can currently use than there's demand for right now to just donate the doses themselves uh, to other countries that are experiencing these surges. The drug industry here suggests something going forward about what might happen with drug price issues here in the U.S. Or is this a one off? I had forgotten, but Biden had promised to do this in an interview with Adi Barkin way back. I think it was last summer when he was talking about his health agenda. So is this a one off or do you think that the Biden administration is ready to actually take on the drug industry? The president said in his joint address to Congress that he supports Medicare negotiating drug prices, which is something the industry absolutely does not want to happen and will do everything they can to prevent. Um, so, you know, if we take him at his word, then yes, this is indicative of a bigger trend. But I also think that this particular issue sort of bridges the trade world and the health world in a unique way. And so it could be more of an indication of where they might go on trade and intellectual property issues more than a healthcare issue. There's a lot of global pressure right now to do things like this. So, you know, and remember in the U.S., we're thinking of a bit 
up a, as a bit of a sprint. You know, we want to get all of our people vaccinated right away. In the rest of the world, particularly in the developing world, this is more of a marathon. I mean, they haven't really had access to the vaccine. And so, yes, there are issues in places that are surging that this is not going to help, but this is going to help long term because in a lot of parts of the world, this is going to be a longer term issue or the solution will be longer to reach than in the U.S. where, you know, everything is starting to reopen already. And this is not sort of a purely humanitarian concern. This is a concern about the health of people in the U.S. as well, because even if we get as vaccinated as possible here, reaching some threshold of herd immunity, if the virus is still just spreading freely in other countries, there's the possibility that variants could emerge that defeat our current vaccines or evade them. And so we could have a situation where if we don't make an effort to contribute to vaccinations in other countries, we're really putting ourselves at risk in the future. I know. I feel like people have such a hard time understanding that, that, you know, the whole WHO, no one is safe until everyone is safe. Um, you know, when this was sort of happening in China, we were all looking as like, oh, well, you know, we've closed China off from the West, rest of the world. But as we've all seen, you can't close almost any piece of the world off from the rest of the world. I mean, even with Ebola, when, you know, it, we were trying to close off just just parts of Africa, um, it, it was getting out. And obviously, Ebola is not anywhere near as contagious as COVID-19, as it turns out. I wonder why it's so difficult to get people to understand this point, that it's in our interest for the rest of the world to get vaccinated, too. Right. People thought that we could stop it in America. I mean, you know, when the vaccine first started, I'm in New York. You know, Florida was like, well, New York drivers can't come here anymore, you know, and it's like we can keep it out of Florida and out of, I think, even Rhode Island was in Massachusetts were stopping New York drivers and was like, yes, you'll be able to contain it in New York. And, you know, it will not spread anywhere else in the country. I mean, it's just something people don't understand. Well, here at home, it looks like the FDA might approve an emergency authorization to vaccinate teens down to age 12 any day now and possibly all children by later this year. Um, That's obviously a big step in the effort to vaccinate enough Americans to provide at least a semblance of herd immunity. And President Biden has set yet another goal to have 70 percent of U.S. adults with at least one vaccine dose by the 4th of July. Some have said that's too easy a goal. Some have said it's too hard. What do we know about how the vaccine effort is actually going? We know that it's slowed down a little bit um, and, you know, they they were hitting millions a day. Now it's sort of going a little bit slower than that, which is an indication that at least experts think that, um, you know, people who were really gung ho about getting vaccinated have gotten out and have gotten that done. Um, But, you know, I think there are a lot of other things that are going on besides just some people being hesitant about the vaccine. I think there are people who just want to wait a little bit longer. There are people who want to talk to their doctors. There are people who know that they'll face side effects from the vaccines or at least think that they they might um, after they see their family members go through it and aren't able to take time off work. Um, And so that's why the Biden administration, it seems, has not just, you know, tried to encourage Um, people to take the vaccine and talk about its safety and efficacy, but also tried to push businesses to offer, you know, paid time off um, and tried to get more places to offer the vaccine because for a lot of people, it just might not be that easy to get it. So the very beginning of the vaccine effort was difficult. Now it's sort of if you want an appointment, you can get it. And there's going to be this harder to reach population moving ahead um, to be able to reach their 70 percent goal. 
So we've moved from free donuts and free beer and in Washington, D.C., a free joint if you get your shot to actual money. Um, The state of Maryland is offering $100 to state employees who get a shot. Other businesses are are doing pretty much the same thing. I mean, I know, you know, when I get my flu shot at Target, they give you a $5 off coupon. Um, Is is actual money going to help here to to push some of the hesitant? I mean, $100 is a lot of money. So I think that what we're seeing now is a ramping up of both carrots and sticks. So carrots like money, like discounts, like freebies. Um, but the sticks are the inability to attend certain events, to go in certain spaces uh, without uh, proving you've been vaccinated. And, and so I think that officials are hoping some combination of those two is persuasive to people. But I also think that they're trying to think about the access issues and they're trying to think about the people who, um, you know, just need it to be as convenient as possible. They don't need to be bribed or threatened into it. They just need it to be literally at their doorstep. Um, and that's that's not true for a lot of people right now. And so I think we are going to see more of these mobile units and like door to door campaigns. And that will sweep up a lot of people whose issues are not really hesitancy. It's more uh, access and convenience. Well, one thing they're doing in New York, which they just announced, which I'll find very interesting to see how much it works, is now if you go to a Yankee or a Mets game, you can get your J&J vaccine on your way into the game and they give you a free ticket for the next for another game. So, you know, that may be getting at certain populations that may be more hesitant to, uh, you know, to get vaccinated. Male populations, not not to mention specifically. Yes, those types of populations. And, uh, you know, but that's a big incentive. I mean, you know, you pretty much walk in, you stop off for 15 minutes, get your shot and you get a free ticket to the next game. So we'll see how that works. I'm sort of impressed with some of the creativity of some of these things. Um, Meanwhile, the Biden administration is going to shift how it distributes vaccine doses to states. Excess that states don't order will go into a bank that other states with higher demand can order from. Will this facilitate vaccination or is it just going to exacerbate what we're already seeing, which is some states with much higher vaccination rates than others? The motivation for that is obviously that states with lower demand are seeing shots go to waste and nobody wants to see that. Whereas places where there's higher demand, they want to get those shots to people because they don't want people to, you know, see a long wait or not be able to get an appointment and just give up. On the other hand, herd immunity doesn't just mean a blanket percentage across the whole country. It means a high enough percentage in each individual community. You can't just have these pockets left in the country where there aren't enough people vaccinated. We really need it to be everywhere. And so it does make sense, but it has to be paired with efforts to drive up vaccination rates in the lower demand areas. Well, we'll we'll see. Maybe maybe we'll see more uh, baseball and po- possibly football games where uh, where you can go go to a game and get your shot. Well, back to the drug industry. Um, despite the fact that President Biden did not specifically include a drug price plan in his latest infrastructure proposal, the American Families Plan, it appears that Democrats in Congress are planning to move without him. Both New Jersey Democratic Congressman Frank Ballone, chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and Oregon Democratic Senator Ron Wyden, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, say they will try to to append drug price lowering plans to whatever measure moves through their committees. How much of these efforts going to be sort of held back by the fact that it's, you know, not being 
overtly pushed by the president. It's a little bit weird because president, you know, called it out in his speech and says he supports it. But the administration doesn't seem to want to have this fight in this particular bill. Is this a real fight? I mean, how are Democrats that much more desirous of doing this right now than the president is? Well, you know, I mean, we see that the Democrats are moving forward with having hearings. You know, um, there were two hearings in the House this week. You know, they've gotten Pelosi's somewhat approval and Schumer has said he's backing it. But, you know, is this just an effort to say, hey, the Democrats are into lowering prices? I mean, we don't even know what's moving forward at all. So, I mean, you have the president in the speech very much saying, yes, I want to lower drug prices, allow Medicare to negotiate, et cetera. And you have the Democrats all saying that, but they're also talking about including it in a bill that we have no idea where it's going to go or how it's going to go. And so, you know, they passed H.R. 3 in 2019 and it allowed them to say in the House, it allowed them to say that, you know, the House Democrats are all for lowering drug prices, but ultimately, obviously, it didn't pass. And, you know, it's unclear where this is going to go, if anywhere. It seems they definitely want to be able to run on this issue in 2022. I mean, it was something that President Biden had promised to do when he was campaigning. It's something Democrats ran on before. Uh, the idea of paying less money for prescription drugs is very popular with voters. Um, you know, even though prescription drug spending isn't, you know, the highest proportion of spending on, in U.S. healthcare, it's something that I think patients understand really well because everyone knows the feeling of going to a pharmacy and seeing that price tag and sometimes not even be, being able to leave with that prescription because the price tag is so high. I don't see the votes in the Senate to um, pass a big drug reform bill that significantly cuts into the industry's profits. Um, you know, the argument they're going to make is, hey, we saved the day when it came to the coronavirus pandemic. We delivered these vaccines in record time. Now, never mind that it was with the help of a lot of government funding that they were able to accomplish this. But still, they, they're trying to sort of seize on that sort of halo to be able to show that they rose to the occasion when needed and to fight back against any efforts from Congress. And I, I do think the House might pass something knowing that it won't go anywhere, because I think that if, if centrist Democrats thought that the bill would become law, they would probably not vote for it. I think a place to watch also, something that's jumped out at me, is I've really heard the Republican rhetoric about this effort escalate. This week, there were two hearings in the House on the drug price negotiation proposal, and Republicans were just going what I kind of referred to as full death panels about it, saying that, you know, this would lead to this socialist hellscape in which bureaucrats would decide who could get drugs and who would live or die. And I think that that, you know, one, that's expected, but it also shows that they're really taking the democratic push more seriously. They're not dismissing it. And so I think that, you know, the House is absolutely going to move forward on this, whether or not uh, it can move in the Senate remains to be seen. But I will also note that the House has an extremely thin democratic majority as well, including several pretty conservative Democratic members who take a lot of money from the pharmaceutical industry. And so I, I don't think the House is necessarily a done deal either. This was bipartisan. Remember, President Trump pushed very hard for this. There have been efforts to make this bipartisan. It's not looking very bipartisan, at least at the moment. Well, President Trump pushed for it, but he bucked his own party to do that. I mean, this was not the Republican orthodoxy and the Republicans True. were not comfortable with it. And there was no evidence that, well, I mean, there was the bipartisan agreement in uh, Senate finance, but 
you know, generally the the idea of negotiations and, you know, even importation was on thin ice with the Republicans. Yes, we should point out that the bipartisan agreement in Senate finance was something that, that then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refused to bring to the floor. Right. And no Republicans voted for it. Right. Another thing is that uh, whatever... Uh, economic recovery and infrastructure bill gets passed later this year, you know, which could include healthcare elements, will probably pass through reconciliation. And I've spoken to a lot of reconciliation experts who don't think that the idea of the proposal to let Medicare negotiate drug prices is something that can pass through that mechanism. Now, really? of course, only the only the <laughs> the parliamentarian gets to decide. But there's been a lot of skepticism that, that is something that can work there. So that might kind of give Democrats an out to be able to blame the process instead of the politics. One of those times where, where the birdbath will be their friend instead of their right. enemy, like the minimum wage. Right. Precisely. (laughs) All right. Well, as we were taping last week, the FDA was announcing that it would seek to ban menthol flavor in cigarettes and small cigars. This is something that public health groups have been agitating for for many years. But it's also controversial because it is pretty directly aimed at the African-American community whose members smoke menthol at much higher rates than other demographic groups. Public health groups say it will start to address institutional racism, in part because the tobacco industry has very publicly targeted the African-American community. Um, with their menthol products. But there are those concerned that while this ban would be aimed at manufacturers, it could give law enforcement yet another reason to harass people of color. And without question, the tobacco industry is going to seek to block this ban in court. Menthol products are big sellers. Um, How big a test is this going to be of efforts to, to curb smoking? I mean, unlike efforts to uh, to do something about drug prices because we need the drug industry. There's been Congress seems to have been a little more willing to go after the tobacco industry, which does not make a lot of life saving products. Is, is this another step down that road or is this going to turn into another big fight? It'll be a big fight. This is uh, just kicking off the process. And, um, you know, it'll take a long time. There'll probably be lawsuits waged. As a country, we have clamped down on cigarette regulations quite a lot. And we've been very successful. And so, um, you know, smoking is down significantly from where it was before we started this process. And so, um, you know, if they are successful, uh, they could get even further down. Now, there are also concerns by critics that there might be some counterfeit products that then make it into the market. Um, and you kind of mentioned that earlier, but it, it's going it's to take a while. But this is, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a big step, but it's really a big step isn't it? Yes. Yes. It is a big, you know, to ban a specific product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it could, you know, if if effective, it could make a huge difference in in getting our tobacco use numbers down even further. We will follow this one as as clearly it's going to be a fight. All right. Finally, this week, the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine has a warning about primary care. If the U.S. doesn't do something soon, and I'm quoting from the report, primary care in the United States is slowly dying. I will point out that the National Academies is not given to hyperbole. A few years ago, it actually poo-pooed the idea of an overall doctor shortage. Um, Now it's calling for every American to either choose or be assigned a personal physician, as happens in so many other nations' health systems. I feel like we spend so much time talking about so many other things that are wrong with the U.S. health system, but we rarely look at the basics like primary care. I mean, what would it take for something like this to actually happen for us? I mean, primary care doctors are paid less than specialists. Um, they, uh, They tend to work 
work harder and be on call more than specialist um, student medical students don't necessarily want to go into primary care, partly because it pays less and partly because the lifestyle is is more difficult than other types of specialties. Is there a way to make primary care more attractive and more available and, and restructure the system? This has been an issue that people, you know, the Commonwealth Fund has been very involved in, in pushing this. And, you know, when I was speaking to them last year, you know, on ways that the U.S. was at risk, at greater risk than the rest of the world for uh, coronavirus spread, one of the things that they had said was that there was less relationship with primary care doctors and a shortage of primary care doctors to take care of people who think that they have, you know, fevers and cold and might have the flu and actually it's coronavirus. So this is a big issue. I mean, there have been incentives to get people into family medicine, you know, over the years that the government has pushed. But, you know, as we say, I mean, medical school is also very expensive and, you know, there's a lot of draw to becoming a surgeon or an anesthesiologist and, you know, in other specialties. Or even an emergency room doctor where you're either on or you're off. Um, I mean, it, some of it is just sort of it's not even necessarily the work. Some of it is just the lifestyle. Um, it's hard to be a primary care doctor. And part of what makes it complicated, too, I think, is that there are so many um, different practices that are sort of popping up for people to have easy access to get medical care. I know that I go to CVS Minute Clinic when I need something. And so when you have that arrangement, and, and they're great, but when you have that arrangement, it also means that when you you know, you need a little bit more specialty or you need certain tests done and things like that, um, that you may not have a primary care physician that's lined up. And it can be really hard. I mean, I know, you know, older people who whose doctors retire have a terrible time finding new primary care physicians. I mean, the, the primary care physicians who are out there mostly have full panels um, and it's actually hard to get. I mean, we just this this is the sort of the one the one place where we already have an obvious sort of shortage slash maldistribution slash, you know, access problem. Certainly when, when they, the next pandemic hits, um, we're going to be ill prepared for it, if only because our sort of primary care base seems to be withering away. Right. But there are also the virus may help in the sense that with the increase in telehealth and the increase now in a lot of apps and such, and obviously millennials and younger generations being more apt to that, the idea of primary care may shift. I mean, I'm a, I belong to one medical and I have for several years and, you know, I, I love it. I love being able to, you know, when I had laryngitis a few years ago, you know, I didn't have to like trek in anywhere. I just, you know, called them, you know, and croaked at them from my phone on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. And, you know, they told me what I needed. They gave me something and that was great. So and that's my primary care. I pay a little more for it. But, you know, I love that type of access. Yeah. So I think I think we're, we're going to see, I hope, you know, sort of more imaginative ways to, uh, to to match people with the care that they need, maybe maybe for a little less money. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Tammy, why don't you go first this week? Well, I picked uh, a piece by one of our What the Health contributors, Rachel Kors from Stat News. She has a great piece that ran um, earlier this week on Biden's Medicaid pressure tactics could put his team at odds with hospitals. So this is about expanding Medicaid to more low-income folks, particularly obviously in, in, place, in states that didn't expand. There are 12 of them plus 
two states that the voters voted to expand, but they have yet to actually expand. And President Biden during his campaign said that this was something that was of interest to him. And they are trying the carrot by providing in the American Rescue Plan a five percentage point bump in the FMAP in their federal match money to get to get states to expand. And we talked about this earlier that, you know, it's an ideological issue, not necessarily a financial issue. So now they're also, the Biden administration is also putting pressure on them. And, you know, we saw this uh, recently in Texas where the administration chose to rescind a last minute Trump decision to extend this special waiver that Texas had. But the problem is, is that this is now setting up the administration in a fight with hospitals that are in Texas, particularly, we're getting billions from this waiver, this Trump administration waiver. And hospitals are also huge backers of Medicaid expansion. So the story is just looking at how this, you know, could be a problem because the Biden administration is trying these sticks, but these sticks are actually hurting one of their main allies in the fight. So it's a good piece. Politics is complicated in healthcare. Very. Kim. <laughs> yeah, I picked a piece from my colleague Shelby Livingston at Insider, and it's called Big Insurers Like United Health, Humana, Cigna, and Anthem Are Moving Beyond Paying for Care. A new report reveals just how much their DNA has changed. Um, this was a very popular piece with readers um, last week. And, um, you know, speaking of primary care, as we were just a minute earlier, you know, where it, it really looks at how uh, insurance companies are trying to diversify their business portfolios. You know, they're starting to buy up doctor practices and clinics. And, um, you know, they're not just paying claims. They're now offering medical care on, as part of their business. So it's a really interesting snapshot about how the healthcare industry is um, evolving. Vertical integration, as we call it. Alice. So I chose a piece from the Washington Post. It's called Many Police Officers Spurn Coronavirus Vaccines as Departments Hold Off on Mandates. It's by Isaac Stanley Becker. And it is a look at just the very low vaccination rates in police departments in different cities. And the level of hesitancy or resistance is pretty high. A lot of officers say they recovered from COVID and so they don't need it, even though the protection you get from a vaccine is uh, better and longer lasting than the, than the protection you get from the natural antibodies from having COVID. There's just also a culture of this is my personal decision. You can't tell me what to do, even though as the piece emphasizes, the public doesn't have a choice about whether or not it has to interact with the police. And so these officers are making traffic stops, arresting people, getting in close proximity to people. And if they are not vaccinated, that's really putting the public at risk, the very public they have sworn to protect. It's a difficult issue. Um, they feel that mandates could backfire and they're trying to offer some incentives or uh, address hesitancy or misconceptions, doing more education around it. But a lot of departments really aren't seeming to do anything at all and are just leaving this completely up to uh, individual choice. And so this is looking at the the danger of that attitude. Yeah, I think we're still seeing hesitancy as a big problem. Mine is by my KHN colleague, Jenny Gold. It's called The Vulnerable Homebound Are Left Behind on Vaccination. Uh, and it's about people who are not hesitant, um, but who can't easily travel to mass vaccination sites or even the corner drugstore to get their shots. There are an estimated 4 million people in this category. And it's not like they're otherwise safe because they're homebound. These are people 
people who often rely on a cadre of caregivers every day who then are exposed to their own families and to other patients. Uh, Jenny's story includes a woman who got so frustrated trying to get a shot for her 83-year-old dad, she ended up paying $1,400 to rent a wheelchair-accessible van to take him to get both of his doses of the vaccine. So clearly this effort has a long way to go. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Kim? At Leonard KL. Tammy? At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. Alice. At Alice Wilstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.